0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here as usual in the NTS studio. Very hot today, NTS studio, with my co host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Are you hot? I'm in a bikini. No, you're not. You're lying. <laughs> I could be. I be. I, I wish see I was. You. <laughs> Well, we have a very meta show for our listeners this month, don't we? We do. I love meta things. You do. The theme is conversation. And so we'll be talking about people, talking to each other in literature. From the conversation between Marco Polo and Kublai Khan in Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities to the pithy dialogue in Bridget Jones's diary. You could even say that it's a conversation about conversations (laughs) (laughs) shameless Um. (laughs) so as usual our theme is inspired by our guest Octavia can you introduce her with pleasure Our guest today is the Irish writer
1: Sally Rooney. Her debut novel, Conversations with Friends, which is obviously very on theme, tells the story of two female friends and former lovers, Frances and Bobby, and the complicated relationship they fall into with an older married couple called Nick and Melissa. Sally studied English at Trinity College Dublin and her writing has been featured in the Dublin Review, The Stinging Fly and Granter.
0: And she's very young.
1: And she's very young and really great. The book is really great. Yeah,
0: and youngness shouldn't matter.
1: No, it really shouldn't.
0: But I said it. (laughs) So we'll be talking to Sally, discussing the theme more generally, and also giving some book recommendations. So join our conversation for the next hour of Literary Friction. I like what you did there with the conversation. Sally Rooney, welcome to Literary Friction. Thanks so much for coming on today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We've asked you to start with a reading, so could you set it up for us, please?
2: Sure. Well, I've decided to read from the very beginning of the book. Great. So that (laughs) saves me having to come up with any patter to introduce the characters. Um, So I'll just read the first couple of pages, if that's okay. Um, Bobby and I first met Melissa at a poetry night in town where we were performing together. Melissa took our photograph outside with Bobby smoking and me self-consciously holding my left wrist in my right hand, as if I was afraid the wrist was going to get away from me. Melissa used a big professional camera and kept lots of different lenses in a special camera pouch. She chatted and smoked while taking the pictures. She talked about our performance and we talked about her work, which we'd come across on the internet. Around midnight, the bar closed. It was starting to rain then, and Melissa told us we were welcome to come back to her house for a drink. We all got into the back of a taxi together and started fixing up our seatbelts. Bobby sat in the middle with her head turned to speak to Melissa so I could see the back of her neck and her little spoon-like ear. Melissa gave the driver an address in Monkstown and I turned to look out the window. A voice came on the radio to say the words 80s, pop, classics. Then a jingle played. I felt excited, ready for the challenge of visiting a stranger's home, already preparing compliments and certain facial expressions to make myself seem charming. The house was a semi-detached red brick with a sycamore tree outside. Under the streetlight, the leaves looked orange and artificial. I was a big fan of seeing the insides of other people's houses, especially people who were slightly famous like Melissa. Right away, I decided to remember everything about her home so I could describe it to our other friends later, and Bobby could agree. When Melissa let us in, a little red spaniel came racing up the hall and started barking at us. The hallway was warm and the lights were on. Next to the door was a low table where someone had left a stack of change, a hairbrush and an open tube of lipstick. There was a Medigliani print hanging over the staircase, a nude woman reclining. I thought, this is a whole house. A family could live here. We have guests, Melissa called down the corridor. No one appeared, so we followed her into the kitchen. I remember seeing a dark wooden bowl filled with ripe fruit and noticing the glass conservatory. Rich people, I thought. I was always thinking about rich people then. The dog had followed us to the kitchen and was snuffling around at our feet, but Melissa didn't mention the dog, so neither did we. Wine, Melissa said, white or red. She porged huge, bowl-sized glasses, and we all sat around a low table. Melissa asked us how we'd started out performing spoken word poetry together. We had both just finished our third year of university at the time, but we'd been performing together since we were in school. Exams were over by then, it was late May. Melissa had her camera on the table, and occasionally lifted it to take a a photograph, laughing self-deprecatingly about being a work addict. She lit a cigarette and tipped the ash into a kitschy-looking glass ashtray. The house didn't smell of smoke at all, and I wondered if she usually smoked in there or not. I made some new friends, she said. Her husband was in the kitchen doorway. He held up his hand to acknowledge us, and the dog started yelping and whining and running around in circles. This is Francis, said Melissa, and this is Bobby, they're poets. He took a bottle of beer out of the fridge and opened it on the countertop. Come and sit with us, Melissa said. Thank you. It's a brilliant
0: opening. Oh, thank and you I so much. I I love the way it introduces this character, Francis, who's a wonderful observer, but also incredibly neurotic in a number of ways yes, <laughs> that, yeah. that come back to us. Um, but the first thing I wanted to ask you was the title of the novel conversations with friends Mm -hmm. um we have themed our show conversations this month and i think it's appropriate not not just because it's the title of your novel but because conversations is such a big part of this novel itself but how did you come to that title and why did you want conversations to be central to people's understanding of this novel
2: um so i came to the title it's sort of came to me one day uh, and then I, I have a real when I'm writing a novel I get into a real sort of magical thinking phase where if something comes to me easily then I attach a huge amount of significance to it and think that it sort of augurs something about the project so when this idea came to me I felt full of like complete joy and I was like yes this is it this is the title this book has been searching for and it was quite early on in the project so it gave me a sense of like a weird sense of momentum that I had managed to come up with a title that I felt summarized something about it and so I was so attached to it in that kind of um mystical way that I didn't really examine what it was about that um, that appealed to me so much. So I think there's the conversations element, and obviously a lot of the book is dialogue. I mean like open it to any random page, and it's more than likely kind of half of it will be characters talking um, and a lot of the momentum of the plot comes, I think from those exchanges and what they tell us about the dynamics between the characters um, and then the other element of the title is obviously friendship and I think one of the big concerns of the book is how do we define friendship and um, how do we sort of categorize our relationships and then um, sort of exploring the ambiguities of friendship so something about that I felt was just the right title for the book and then when I fixed on it I was never going to let it go
1: (laughs) also we talk about momentum and it's a book that has for me anyway such a fast pace to it I devoured it you know it was incredibly compelling these voices are so I mean I can still hear them you know I feel like I'm in conversation with Francis and Bobby quite quite a lot (laughs) which makes me sound like a loon but anyway Um, but the the kind of the pace of it I wondered um, was it a story that came to you in in a very fast kind of mythical way.
2: Yeah, I it it came to me incredibly quickly and I wrote the first draft really fast. And um, so, and the first draft was really long, a lot longer than this. Um, and I wrote it over about three months. So it was almost like, obviously the book is about a love affair and it was almost like a love affair with the novel. <laughs> I was like, it was on my mind all the time and it was all I wanted to focus on. And I was writing for like silly hours during the day and into the night. Um so it's it's funny, obviously, I, having written it, have no idea how pacey it is because I know exactly what's going to happen on every page. But it's something that I do hear from people who've read it, that their experience of it is that it's quite fast moving. And it's funny for me because my experience of writing it was that way. So maybe somehow that transmuted itself into the prose and that's, yeah. One of
0: the things that I think, makes it very pacey is the dialogue. As you say, much of this novel is is dialogue. Um, And one of the things that I love that you did with dialogue, which I think a lot of good dialogue does, is show the gap between what people are saying and what they're actually thinking. And Frances is someone who, a lot of the way that she interacts with people is something that she thinks about beforehand And afterward, Mm -hmm. um, and often isn't reflective of the state of her mind at that time. So is that something that you wanted to show in this book? Do you think fiction is a good way of showing that gap between what we say and what we feel?
2: Yeah, and again... Um, Thinking about these things now that the book is written is really interesting for me because um, obviously there's something subconscious going on there that I was putting into the book, but I wasn't necessarily aware of when I was writing it. And the fact that the um, the Francis, the narrator, is a writer and that Nick, the man that she has an affair with, is an actor means they're both kind of performers in a way. They both construct personalities for themselves. Francis through her writing and Nick obviously on stage. So there is obviously this underlying concern about the book, like, who are we really? Like, what is the authentic self that lies underneath the language that we use to describe ourselves or the personalities that we perform for other people? And Frances also says, like, I have no real personality. And I think Nick makes a similar remark as well. Yeah, and then Bobby says she means that as a compliment. (laughs) I love that. In a nice way. In a nice way, you have no personality. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so obviously that is something that, that concerns me a lot. And a lot of the dialogue is sort of, Um, has got that underlying sense of these characters are communicating something, but are they communicating what they really mean or what they really feel? And um, what is it to really mean something if you can't say it, Um, if you can't communicate it to the person who you're thinking about or that you feel something for? Um, So those are all concerns that are in there and not necessarily, you know, questions that I was consciously trying to work out. But certainly that informed the book, yeah.
1: And I really like the way that Bobby and Francis talk about They have kind of classic you know undergrad student um theoretical conversations about you know what certain things mean and how they want to live versus how they're actually living and you have with the the relationship between nick and melissa who are married to one another and the way that the girls or the young women i should say (laughs) interact with them um it, it opens up this really brilliant gulf between, as Carrie was saying, like what people actually think and what the, and the way that they then go on to behave. But there's something in that deconstruction of these relationships that feels, to me, incredibly contemporary, where we're, you know, we're living in a time where the nuclear family is less of a kind of pinnacle of, of expectation and achievement, and people are trying to find different ways to connect and relate to one another. And I wonder, was that something you you deliberately wanted to explore or was it something
2: that evolved uh, kind of organically out of the characters um and that's a really interesting question i think i would like to think that it did evolve organically from the characters but i have to confess it is also a huge kind of concern of mine i'm really interested in how contemporary relationships develop and how i think sort of all our vocabulary for speaking about relationships comes from Uh, like at the most recent the mid-20th century like the nuclear family that's such a mid-20th century sort of phrase and way of conceptualising how we live and obviously the ways that our relationships have developed since that period in history is just huge I mean people it's so normal now for families to separate and for families to be mixed and parents to have new partners and and obviously the way that as young people we search for meaningful relationships it's not necessarily about finding one life partner and staying with them forever that's not what people necessarily want at age 18 or 21 like Francis is in the book so but do we have the vocabulary to describe that can we really talk about those relationships if we don't have words to describe what they are Um, and the insufficiencies of words like boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean can Francis really describe like the married man who she's sleeping with as her boyfriend? Probably not really Um, but also you know her relationship with Bobby, like is that just a friendship when obviously they're very intensely connected to one another, sort of on an intellectual level, as you say, but also on an emotional level. Um, so I am deeply interested in how we talk about relationships that we don't necessarily have the vocabulary to describe. Yeah.
0: I thought that was true also with gender in this novel, where and this idea of performance, where the characters in some ways were performing their gender. And I think especially Frances and Bobby were thinking about this a lot. What does it mean to be a woman? How do you get outside of structures that are so ingrained in our mind and our society and still perform gender um and i i th- it seems like that's a, another one of your concerns as well.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I'm, and I'm, I'm very interested in you know, feminist theory and I think that those concerns are reflected in the book. But I'm also interested in how sort of irreducibly various people's individual experiences really are. We can talk about gender on a very broad social level and it's important that we do so. Um, but how much of that can really capture the experience, the day-to-day experience of living as a woman or as a man and how we feel that those sort of tropes define us um, or speak to our individual experiences. Experiences, and I think the moral questions that Frances asks herself in the book, like "What kind of a person should I be? What should I do?" Um, she really doesn't know how to separate that from how she's been raised to behave as a woman. So obviously, she feels that you know, as a as a girl, you grow up being told to be unselfish and you know to give of yourself to others. And I think we obviously learn to critique that when you know if you get into feminism in college, as many young women now do, but then it leaves the question open, how unselfish should you be? You know, like, and that question feels so unanswered for her. And I think for me as an individual, like how much of yourself can you give or should you give um, and how much should you reject those ideas of selflessness that are handed to you? But I also think that um, all the all the characters in the book are probably struggling with gender identity. And I think for Nick, as, as someone who you know, he's kind of uh, like a theory guy, he's interested in literature, he's sort of like politically conscientious. And the idea of having to play up to this masculine identity that's obviously imposed on men, um, you know, can become quite sort of difficult when you feel like politically that's not something you necessarily identify with or believe is, you know, a positive social institution. So I think all all of the characters probably to some extent feel a, a discomfort within their gender roles, if yeah, if that makes sense.
1: I think it's really interesting that in the dialogue that emerges both in terms of the words that are spoken by the characters, but also words that are written by the characters, because obviously there's a lot of email communication as well, um, which I think you deploy really brilliantly. It's the the shift in tone between the kind of spoken dialogue and the written dialogue is really true to life. Um, But, you know, the the characters are confronting all of these subjects that at one point maybe would have been taboo, like sex and and relationships and Mm -hmm. stuff. But the only thing that comes across as really being taboo is health, the, the issue of various kind of health fragilities that Francis has and Nick also has. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that because it really, really struck me that it seems to be this one area that these characters can't actually articulate what's happening for them. Um, and if you, again, if that's a sense of, of, of yours, that that's kind of still one of these last taboos, for us to be honest about our physical vulnerability in some way, where we have like the Dawson's Creek style dialogue of all of our emotional vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. but we still can't quite articulate when we're suffering physically.
2: Yeah, and that, yeah, and thank you for that. That's a really um, interesting look at that area of the book. And it's, it's only through having conversations about the book afterward that I've actually realised that Nick and Francis both have sort of in tandem are both suffering these sort of health issues that they find incredibly difficult to verbalize and communicate about um and I was sort of like not even really aware that I was doing that but obviously is is it's very much there in the book um yeah I think all the characters do struggle to come to terms with vulnerability uh, probably both physical and emotional um and what why that is it's it's a it's a it's a good question they're obviously very confident to the point of sort of um like comedy sometimes at asserting their you know political beliefs and their convictions um and maybe because of that and because of their desire to be seen as in control of their own lives it's very difficult to acknowledge that for all their certainty and their sort of conceptual um you know intellectual insight into their lives that often they are deeply personally lacking in some way. um and the way that Frances deals with the illness in the book um it also goes back to her sense of herself as a woman and her femininity and her identity at a very basic level and it, I think it's very difficult for her to say on the one hand oh you know I'm a I'm a radical socialist feminist and I you know and I have all these political beliefs and convictions and I want to be taken very seriously which both she and Bobby really do but on the other hand to say I'm I'm a weak fragile vulnerable individual and I sometimes don't know how I feel about myself it's very difficult to hold both those beliefs you know uh, at the same time and to feel that people are going to be open to seeing all that within one person and I think if she had to choose one she definitely chooses the she wants to be seen as the competent you know smart uh deeply passionate individual and not the sort of frail um and I think almost the frail effeminate uh version of herself that she tries to dismiss yeah
0: it's funny I often feel bad for novelists when we interview them because we're asking them about all of these ideas that we found in their books and probably are in their books but as you've been saying, it's not necessarily something that you're thinking about when you're writing. You you have all these in- ideas in your mind and they're things that you're concerned about, but they're not things that you say, okay, I really want to express um, the, the intersection between femininity and illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I guess I wanted to ask you what, what is there when you're writing? I know that's a really big question, but but what are your primary concerns and how did the how do you think these ideas get inserted if you if you can at all dissect your process? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And it's something I think about a lot because it's just like you say, I mean, you step back from what you've done and you realize like, oh, well there are all these, you know, concerns very visible in the work and they touch on, you know, my own sort of intellectual concerns, but I wasn't conscious that I was inserting them. So you almost begin to feel like you're some kind of mystical conduit for from- like <laughs> the zeitgeist is speaking through you, which is obviously not the case um but it is hard to know when you sit down with the work um what what is it as you say, what's going on there um I guess for me, I feel compelled by um to write about these people as as people and as relationships. That's what really interests me and once I get them in a scenario, it does feel like they have, they gain their own momentum. If I understand them well enough, and I understand their psychology well enough, then their interactions almost happen spontaneously because I know what these kind of people would do. I know what they would say to one another. And I think like once Francis and Nick get on the page together, it almost becomes inevitable that they're going to end up, you know, in some kind of relationship. So it, it almost feels like all I have to do is observe it like as a film playing out in my mind and then sort of make an account of it on the page. And how that translates to these, you know, conceptual ideas, I really have to say, I don't know. Yeah.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned... it playing out a bit like a film because it's to me it's an incredibly cinematic piece of work as well I think because of the emphasis on dialogue yeah. and I wondered and this is a funny old question but would you ever consider writing a play or, or a film script?
2: Yeah because I, I, I my my mum runs an, a small art centre in the west of Ireland so I grew up watching a lot of theatre and Dad. also doing sort of a lot of like amdram myself and um, and I think that probably that, that's reflected a little bit in the fact that Nick is an actor and they're sort of involved in the world of theatre and um, it's something I still find really interesting but I, and I have tried to write plays I think it's such a difficult and different skill set like because I I find by now having written this book and having you know having written a lot over the last few years I have a, I feel like I have a sort of feel for dialogue and I kind of know how to write that and then I think like oh well this will translate easily into a play or a film script and you realize like in a play the dialogue has to hold everything all the information has to be in there you can't just take a break and say oh by the way here's the background of these two characters because there's no one to do it for you um so it's it's a very very different form and i think it would yeah it would take me a long time to get to a point where i felt really comfortable with it but i am definitely interested yeah
0: So you have experimented with a lot of different um forms you're a poet as well yep. you write short stories mm-hmm. um uh, th- did, did, does that feel really different when you switch between mediums or do you think it's all part of a larger project?
2: Short stories and novels, I definitely feel are part of part of the same sort of project. I feel like I'm using the same part of my brain when I'm doing it, if that makes sense. And um, when I write nonfiction, it's like a totally different, extremely grueling experience. Like when I write fiction, I feel like I can write really quickly, even if I end up discarding most of what I write. That's kind of fine because I had fun when I was writing it. And if so I'm writing nonfiction, it takes me so long to write even one paragraph and it's like you go back and examine the claims that you've made and the sort of linear reasoning that you've tried to employ and you see all these flaws in it and you have to modify your claims and you have to try and nuance your argument and it's so, so difficult to make even the smallest point. <laughs> um, whereas in fiction, you can sort of just invent people and make them do what you want. So it's it's a lot freer, I think, working in fiction. Um, and yeah, and nonfiction, I find really, really challenging in a very different way. Um poetry I haven't written for years now and I used to write a lot of poetry and I still read a lot of poetry um, and I have immense respect for it Um, I love to read contemporary poetry I think there's such interesting things going on in the sort of contemporary poetry world Um, but again I think it's almost because of my huge admiration for it the more and more I read the less and less capable I feel of actually engaging with where that form is going at the moment. There are such interesting practitioners doing really interesting things. And I feel like, oh, that's so beyond me. (laughs) I'm happy to just read it and try and absorb what I can. Um, But yeah, I think it's almost like it's too difficult for me uh, at the moment anyway. Poetry has a real place
1: in this novel, though, because, of course, Bobby and France's connection is around poetry. Um, But we never read any of their poems in the text, which I thought was, you know, it was was great because you're left with this... um, sense of wanting to know more and things but when you were when you were kind of considering them as characters were you relating it to your own poetic drive or did it feel like something very very separate
2: Yeah, Frances is a writer and obviously I am a writer. So I could only I couldn't help but draw on kind of my own experience of writing to give her this sort of writerly identity. Um, And at one stage uh, in an early draft of the book, you did get to read some of her. She writes a short story late on in the book and you did get to read some of that. Um, But I'm happy that I took it out because, as you say, I think it leaves a kind of interesting void. um, And also because it means that the only writing of hers that you read are her emails and instant messages, which I think there's an interesting relationship there between how her voice develops as the narrator of the book and how her voice develops in her emails. And um, so I was kind of, Pleased that I didn't try and recreate any of her um poetry. But she's spoken word poet. She and Bobby perform spoken word poetry together and I have never done that and would find it immensely nerve wracking and difficult. I think Frances does find it a little bit nerve wracking and feels she's not like a very good performer, but if she's like a, a four out of ten, I think I would be like a minus one out of ten. <laughs> so I just couldn't couldn't bring myself to um but that's the that's the whole inciting incident of the novel. So yeah. It is, yeah. You'd need a you'd need a bobby to kind of carry you through. <laughs> Absolutely. <when> you... <laughs> yes.
0: So I wanted to talk more about Nick and Frances' relationship because I think that is sort of the spine of this novel yeah. in many ways. Um, and first of all, I think it, it's very interesting. It's it's in some ways, as we were talking about, it is very non-traditional what they were doing. Um, it's not an affair as such, although some other peripheral characters try to define it as that. Mm-hmm. In other ways, it's it's replicating... a a very conventional cheating relationship in that it's an older man Mm -hmm. with a younger woman the younger woman is kind of an ingenue he's um you know he he's wiser in the ways of the world and and we're hearing from the younger woman and I just wanted, did you struggle with that a bit that you you were replicating something that is sort of the power structures that make us uncomfortable but also we sort of already understand in a way.
2: Yeah, and I think the fact that it feels like such a conventional narrative that it's a younger woman as you say and and an older man and also that there's even sort of a class difference between them that he's very financially sort of secure and successful. She describes him as rich um, and she's obviously a sort of financially precarious student um, that I think the overwhelming availability of that narrative to us, the fact that it's so easily legible, um, actually prevents Frances from really understanding, I think, what's going on for like a large part of the book. She doesn't really understand Nick as an individual because she's so ready to see him as like the glamorous older man who she's going to have an affair with. And I think it takes her a long time to understand him as an individual and to understand that he is, as we were talking about, like a very vulnerable person. Um, and it's almost like the inverse of what she has with Bobby because it's like there's no available narrative. She just doesn't know of any other relationship, you know, in culture or in her personal life that she can apply as a sort of narrative fit to what's going on between her and Bobby. And so for that reason, she can only see Bobby as a sort of overwhelmingly individual personality. Um, and I think that that the, the the difference there is a difference of narrative and almost stereotype. It's like how um, how can we make this... Fit into something that we already know, and you're and you're right. Like in in one sense, it it fits that exactly, and I think Francis is extremely aware of that from the beginning of the book. But there is another sense, an underlying sense, that really it's not exactly what it appears to be. Maybe, yeah,
1: yeah. It brings up interesting for me. It brought up interesting questions about um, ethical kind of engagement with other people because Melissa, who's the, who's Nick's wife, um, you know, in that first opening bit that you read, we hear she takes photographs of the girls, and there's this kind of sense of patronage as well right that comes along with it but then I think what the power of it for me is that you then kind of blow that apart because we get to know them as individuals and we get to understand the ways in which these four people have a really profound impact on one another's lives outside of those structures yeah even though those structures are kind of unavoidable you know I I, it's not a question but (laughs) it's an observation I guess I, I found that I found it very um I found that one of the things that leapt out of the book for me and that was quite an unusual thing to find explored in a novel in that way that I could relate to in quite a profound way.
0: Yeah. so here is a less well articulated and intelligent question for you <laughs> which is basically I found this really sexy and I mean that as a total compliment I mean it's a very yeah, it's a very, very sexy, sexy book. book
2: thank you and it, is, it's and, um, <laughs>
0: and it well, well first of all we not too long ago interviewed Emer McBride about her novel The Lesser Bohemians I don't know if you've read it but I, not that's, that
2: one but I love Emer McBride's work yeah, it's on my and
0: list. it's another novel about um, I mean it's different in so many different ways but it is about a younger woman and an older man mm-hmm. in a relationship and it's very sexy and, and I sexy. think I think she in the other day there was a headline in the Guardian of her saying I'm not interested in novels that don't engage with sex yeah um, and I wanted to ask you if that was true for you and also how you thought about writing sex because it is a it's a tough thing to do.
2: Yeah. And I and I read that article um of Emer's and I was like nodding all the way through it. I was like, Yes, this is so and I'm I'm glad she was brave enough to say it because I find it um it opens you up to the criticism of being an unserious person. I think, particularly if you're a woman, to say, Oh, the only thing I'm really interested in is sex. That's it's all I think about. You know, it kind of it makes you seem like you're not really taking the whole business of literature very seriously. You're just like, you know, it's almost like you're looking for some kind of um Aestheticized pornography, really. and um and I obviously don't think that's true. And I think what Emer put into words in uh, in that piece for The Guardian is that there is this deep relationship between the creative impulse uh, or the aesthetic impulse and and sexuality. and I like I, I can't deny that that's definitely in my work. And I sometimes think that really, um sexual tension is like the sustaining element of the momentum of the book. and it's like how much can you sort of how much? other interesting stuff can you hang on the sexual tension without letting it all sort of fall apart and that for me is like one of the really fun things of being a writer is like how how can I make the reader so invested in this sexual tension that they will read pages and pages and pages of psychology and discussions and um I mean that's a terrible way of putting it but it kind of feels like you keep turning the pages because you're like oh are they going to get together when are they going to do it when are they going to do it yeah and then you you obviously also want to you want your sex scenes to be sexy because it's part of the psychology of the book, right? Like you don't really believe that Frances would invest so much in this relationship if the sex that she had was was boring or unpleasant for her or you know you you want to give the character the experience of pleasure and desire because it's so much of what drives her in the book is about that so it's it's not it's not just like it, I think it has like a you know quote serious function within the book as literature um but yeah I I know I'm I'm sounding like I'm really um reluctant to say that i that i invest that much in in sexuality but i think i definitely do i probably shouldn't be so reluctant to say it yeah no
1: don't be (laughs) it's great but it's that's the thing with so much literature that avoids it it often does feel like a gaping void because you know if you're exploring the fullness of a character's life but you're completely leaving out this one incredibly potent drive that we all have regardless of orientation and desire it feels to me like a bigger mission a lot of the time so yeah i i really i really enjoyed your sex scenes they were great <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you yeah, and like you ne- you never know you know like are people going to be cringing are is it, are people going to hate them are they going to be embarrassing or awkward and but i think i had to i had to do it like it, the book wouldn't be what it is without that without those scenes so yeah i just had to Uh, I didn't have to force myself to write them. They were fun to write, but I had to force myself to leave them in and allow other people to actually read them. Yeah,
0: Yeah. just let go of them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and one final question. I just want to return to Frances, um, who is so... One of the reasons I love this novel was I just love spending time in her company. She's sort of dry and witty, but also insecure and just encompasses a lot of personalities and feelings and thoughts but feels very original so was she how how did she take shape and and what does she mean to you as a character?
2: Yeah, I so I wrote the, the book, as I said, I wrote that kind of crazy first draft when I was 23. And and Frances is 21. So I was really round about the same life stage as her. And I'm now 26. So I feel like there's a bit more of a gap and I can kind of look at her with a cooler eye. <laughs> and sort of, yeah, and I see, I, now reading it, I see so much more of her insecurity and vulnerability than I think I did, even when I was writing it, which is strange. Um, I'm enormously fond of her. And a lot of people who read the book, don't don't like her at all and i have to i just be open to that, and it's totally fine if people read the book and find find her annoying or want to shake her. Um, but I do, I do feel, I feel almost like a protectiveness, which is strange. I know some writers kind of refer to their characters as like their children or their babies, and I don't, I don't have children, so I have no idea if it's in any way analogous. But I do feel that sort of like slightly protective instinct, and I think maybe it's partly because she is younger than me, and partly because I'm sure she must be in some sense derived from my psychology in some way, whether I'm aware of it or not. Um, but I think she's someone who wants desperately to live with integrity and she doesn't know how. And I think that's probably true, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, I think is true of a lot of people. It's really difficult in a society that's so unjust that, you know, every conscientious person thinks is just a horribly unjust society. How do you live with integrity in a society like that? And how do you inhabit things like the nuclear family that we were talking about? Um, without in a without feeling that you're debasing yourself in some way by submitting to these relationships that you feel are unequal um and those questions really concern her in a sincere way but she doesn't necessarily manage to navigate them very well and she does hurt other people you know she's obviously not perfect she does some things which are kind of pretty terrible um but i but, I think that she's sort of I have this sense that she's sort of fundamentally decent, and I don't know whether that's even true, but it's maybe it's something I have to believe in order to you know feel okay that I wrote this book um but yeah i still I still like her
0: I felt like she was fundamentally decent
2: yeah, me too. totally definitely. i oh, really i
0: you. really um Uh, what's that word it's so hot in here I've lost my vocabulary (laughs) you really liked her identified with her identified yeah Yeah. okay well on that note Sally Rooney it has been a total pleasure to have you on thank Thank you so so much much. thank
2: you thank you Um,
0: the book is called Conversations with Friends and it's just been published by Faber so I'm Carrie Plitt. This is Literary Friction. And I'm back here with Octavia Bright to discuss our theme, conversations in literature. So I think we should probably start by just saying that by conversations, we can mean a number of different things. Um, So first, of course, it's just dialogue and correspondence between characters in a novel. And I think there are certain authors, including Sally Rooney, in my humble opinion, uh, that are particularly good at writing dialogue. But it can also mean... Sort of larger things, can't it?
1: Oh, yeah. So, (laughs)
0: um, I mean, there's the conversation between the reader and the book. When we're reading, we're always in a dialogue with the work that we're reading. And texts are in dialogue with each other. I mean, postmodernism is about conversations between texts, um, which we can get into. And also there are conversations that happen around books. So this show is an example of this. Um, the, I'm going to book club tonight. That's another example of this. But you know, books are created not within themselves. They're meant to be setting off points for many other conversations.
1: Absolutely. And especially now with um, you know, online media and stuff it's even it's an even bigger invitation to participate if you think about publishers like the pigeonhole for example who are an online platform that actively encourage their readers to contribute to the kind of development of stories and to the conversations they have with one another and with the writers on their platform you know that kind of thing seems to
0: just be getting bigger and bigger and bigger because yeah. people want to participate definitely so let's focus on that first meeting just dialogue in books um what kind of work do conversations do in books
1: well i think if you were in a literature class you know how to write good dialogue there would be a a sort of bullet point list of things like dialogue should drive the narrative forward it should reveal intentions that can then be dissected internally by the narrative voice separate from the dialogue um, it should reveal certain things about a character, like maybe to do with their upbringing or their background or, you know, the way that they are lying or telling the truth, that kind of thing. But I actually think that you can also find great dialogue in literature that is not doing any of those things, you know, that is that is just sheer exposition or just for the joy of it. And that's why I think it comes in in comedic writing, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But it, it can just be for the joy of repartee. It doesn't always have to be driving the plot,
0: yeah, and I think there's a there's a whole business around telling people that you know how they should write novels. And some of that advice is very useful and some of it is less useful. Um, When I was doing research for the show, as I'm sure was true with you, most of the results that came up were various people professing to know how to write good dialogue.
1: Yep, yep, totally. And really, for that, I would just say, just read some David Mamet, you know? Go to the theatre, like, read some plays. You, you can hone your skills of dialogue writing. And I don't think it's to do with with rules. It's to do with rhythm. That's that when you think about the greatest writers of, of back and forth, it's always to do with the rhythm and the energy that's created between the different voices.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it can be a lot more fun to read than exposition, I always find. Um, yeah. And you can tell when a, an author like Sally Rooney really delights in writing dialogue. One of my favourite things about dialogue is that it is this tremendously fruitful way of showing the gap between what we say and what we think or feel and i think all the best writers of dialogue um grasp that dichotomy or that difference i guess is the better word and use it for either comedic or dramatic purposes
1: yeah definitely definitely and then that carries you that in itself does advance the plot even if it's not its primary focus or its primary purpose. No, I know. I was I was thinking about um, also the interesting crossover between novelists and screenwriters and scriptwriters because obviously when you take a story off the page of the novel, it becomes pure dialogue essentially. Um, and there are some writers like Elmore Leonard who was an t- enormously prolific novelist and also screenwriter. He wrote things like Get Shorty. He wrote um, a book that became Jackie Brown when it was on screen. Um, but also, people like J.D. Salinger, Kurt Vonnegut, like these are all writers whose dialogue is pure energy and joy, you know, even if it's not actually a
0: pleasant scene that's
1: playing out, there's this amazing
0: kind of propulsion to it. Mm. And I think dialogue is also great for just showing how people relate to each other. I'm thinking particularly of Jane Austen here, who is often talked about as a, a master of dialogue and one of the first people to use dialogue in the English novel.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah. But she was one of the first. Yeah. Well,
0: apparently. Jane I mean, the Trailblazer. I'm sure somebody will write in angrily. As if anyone ever writes an angrily to our show. It's <laughs> no, fantasy I'm, of all listeners. of our angry fans. They're terribly polite, really. Yeah. Um, and also, um, I think Zadie Smith is great at this. Smith
1: is great at it and you know who else is really really good at it and I don't actually like his books that much but Nick Hornby. Nick Hornby is a master of a particular kind of contemporary dialogue that is really like his books like About a Boy for example which I think opens with um, dialogue that is completely um, devoid of any he said she said. It's just this like line 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 which is also kind of a different development in the way that we present that we're presented with dialogue. Obviously Jane Austen it's all very formally grammatically marked out with the right punctuation and then you come into more contemporary literature and that gets dispensed with and that in itself is quite exciting because it in, it in, involves as the reader more engagement because you have to follow whose voice is whose and who's contributing at what point you know and again and in, in in sally's book um there are no quotation marks around the dialogue so it's it's kind of following along that i guess is it a modernist trend i think you could say to get rid of that kind of thing yeah yeah and I enjoy that. I really enjoy that. I find when I read older literature that has all of the he said, she said stuff in it, I find it now actually often slows it down for me. Mm. And that's just because I've got accustomed to something different stylistically.
0: I'm reading Persuasion right now, which I'll, I'll talk about in a bit. But um, yeah, she's so, she recreates dialogue, but then has to sort of explain everything around it. It's so, so a character will say something and then it's like, Uh, she thought to herself that, and then then something else will come in and then there will be another line of dialogue, but nothing like a play script. Um, You can see how it's evolved since then. So I think you mentioned Nick Hornby and I think one of the reasons why Nick Hornby is so good at dialogue and I agree that he is good at dialogue is because it's funny. Exactly. And when I was thinking about Masters of Dialogue, so many of them were writers that are considered to be comedic yeah totally which is so interesting isn't it yeah and and i wonder what you think about that okay
1: well my big example of that is douglas adams Mm. who wrote hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy among other things who is a master of the kind of dialogue he's writing because what he's able to do is i mean his books are absurdist and it's like Monty Python or something and the way that he uses and he's very aware of the power of language and he's very there's lots of motifs throughout his books to do with misunderstanding um and a lot of the comedy in his dialogues is to do with complete and utter linguistic misunderstanding that you can really enjoy on the page in a way that you maybe wouldn't enjoy so much listening orally because you can't necessarily see the word play you know and it plays it kind of uses the visualization of these words that can be false friends and mean different things Mm. um but i think it's also about pace because comedy is so much to do with pace and if you're reading like you know how to kill a joke is to explain it um and so if you're reading exposition that's trying to be funny it's it's got a harder task i think i was also thinking about kevin barry who we had on a while ago whose dialogue is just exquisite and so funny Um, And actually, he's a writer who, in Beetlebone, the book we discussed with him, it descends into pure dialogue at one point, and he talked with us about how he's gone on to write play scripts because he found so much joy in the freedom of that mode, you know? Um, Yeah,
0: I, I was thinking also about how comedy is often what is unexpected and dialogue allows for that, where you think you're following a certain path and then you, got, you get thrust onto another path just because there are people in dialogue with each other rather than one sentence or one writer or one narrator.
1: Yeah, definitely. It also allows you as a reader to have a kind of freer experience of the text that you're reading because you're not locked within the, the perspective of the narrative voice, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be so pleasurable when you
0: get to jump around between different characters. We've been talking a lot about Lincoln and the Bardo, and I think that's another great example of a writer who has turned to an almost play script to get his point across. And that is is both a very poignant but also very funny novel.
1: Very funny and also really engages with the wider concept of texts being in constant dialogue with one another and self-referential and referential to the greater body of literature and things like that it's a book that's full of conversation with other texts, imaginary and real history and imagination you know, it's yeah, it's a phenomenal book. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to um, Helen Fielding and Sue Townsend, both of them you know writers who I don't I don't then they never feature on lists of favorite writers, but when I was stopping to think about dialogue, I think they're brilliant at it. I also think actually JK. Rowling is really good at dialogue. Um, she's not necessarily that good at getting vast nuanced differences between the voices, but if you think about the way that the characters talk in Harry Potter throughout the seri- Throughout the whole series of books, you really do get a sense of their voices, you know. And maybe this is something that will be not so relevant to younger listeners, but we're we're the Harry Potter generation. You and I aren't we? We're the same age. Oh yeah. Um, yes, we are. Yeah, and I can hear Dumbledore's voice in my head sometimes, and
0: Hagrid. I wonder if dialogue, because a lot of the things you've cited, you said, you know, these writers aren't part of the great literary canon, but they're great at dialogue is dialogue a sign of something being genre
1: mm that's a very interesting question my dear well it, it it okay i think that there is something there actually because i'm sure that there is some inbuilt literary snobbery against something that's carried mainly by dialogue because if you think about the heavy literary Fiction. Ooh, nearly did a little.
0: I slip now there. just say literary friction. <laughs> it's <a> really annoying <laughs> Always because on I work brand. in publishing, so I have to say it all the time. Always
1: on brand, baby. Always on brand. No, I. I think there is something in that that because because of the energy around dialogue that there's maybe there's a, as and because it doesn't enter the same kind of depth as internal monologue exposition or third person kind of you know dipping into somebody's philosophical um motivations that they're let, let's say considered a lighter form which is nonsense really
0: if you yeah think about it and i guess at least if you're writing a realist novel and trying to recreate the people the way that people speak to each other that is ultimately hard to be very mannered doing while still recreating the way that we speak to each other and I think there are very few authors who really get that right
1: yeah I agree with you I also think just think on this point of genre we were talking about comedy but the other genre where a very stylized kind of recognizable tone of dialogue comes up is in um the murder mystery and I was thinking about writers like Dashiell Hammett and um oh god what's the other guy called (laughs) uh I can't find it in my notes. Chandler? Chandler, that's right. And they you know, it's that hard boiled, pithy, witty very stylized people don't talk like that in real life, but when you enter into those universes and you hear the gravelly voice of the gnarled wizened detective who like looks at a dead body and makes a joke about the color of its underwear or something like that, you know what world you're in immediately and it's a real fantasy because like I said people don't talk like that well, you hope people don't talk like yeah. that in
0: reality well I think the the gifted dialogist is somebody who is able to write stylized dialogue while still making you Enter the worlds. There's a great well. Believe in the worlds and enter the worlds, and um, and read it as if it was part of the text. So I I, I was really interested. Um, James Wood uh, reviewed the work of Richard Price in the New Yorker a few years back, um, and, and he was saying, why do we always praise authors for having an ear for dialogue? Because that's not actually it. They're not actually recreating how we speak to each other. Um, And and he argues that, you know, instead it's more about the mind. It's more about a a fantasy of speaking. A fantasy of connection
1: as well. I think that's a really interesting point. I also think that I wanted to ask you how you find reading texts, like, for example, Trainspotting by Irvin Welsh, where a a dialect is written
0: out. Yes, I feel complicated about dialect because I think... It's really important in some ways. I think spotting, because that's written in dialect, It it's embracing a way of life and a way of thinking and a way of being that might be hard to access if you weren't speaking colloquially like those characters would speak. But at the same time, I find it very annoying as a reader.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's frustrating. To, it can be yeah. very frustrating. It demands more... Of your attention, it demands more willingness from its reader to submit to the world. Yeah. And basically accept that maybe they're not going to understand immediately. But then that's the point, because the world of transporting is a rarefied place that, you know, most middle class readers are not gonna feel comfortable in anyway. So yeah. it's part of the world building of the text.
0: I also think that difficulty isn't a reason why a novel shouldn't be celebrated. Yeah. I use too many. You know negatives. how I feel about that. Yeah. Yes. But but I think you know it, it's worth engaging with those things if if they actually have merit.
1: Yeah, I agree with you.
0: I would say that Joseph in Wuthering Heights does not need to be there. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> no. It's So annoying. No, not It's a servant who speaks in in like a dialect that is literally un- incomprehensible. <laughs> That's brilliant. I hope his name is Joseph. I'm probably misremembering this. The angry listeners will write in, don't worry. Okay, well, the, we've, of course, like totally run out of time already and we have not spoken about the epistolary novel nor the dialogue novel, which has been defined by some as as a novel just told in dialogue like invisible cities by which Italo t- Calvino. or
1: a tiny little aside our favorite writer of all time Dave Eggers has written yes, a dialogue novel yep, which Dave, I have
0: no desire to read I'd rather
1: pull my own eyelashes out one by one I'm just gonna have to read some fingers. Dave Eggers
0: I feel like this has gone too far no no <laughs> well we're not going to talk about Dave Eggers let's talk about our favorite dialogue novels
1: okay My, uh, well, I actually found this as usual, really difficult. I found it really difficult to narrow it down. Um, But you know how we feel about the word favourite. So the the one that I wanted to talk about today is, um, is Nicotine by Nell Zink, which I've mentioned on the show before when I was reading it a little while ago. Um, And her, her whole style is so unarguably contemporary and kind of Right now, right now, right now, and that comes across in her dialogue, which is in itself pretty stylized, but it's very, very funny. Um, and in this novel, um, in particular, the the kind of satire and the archness of the way that her characters speak, with very, very great dexterity and very little, seemingly little effort, it changes everything for you. And I mean, apparently, she wrote the book in three weeks, and what an extraordinary mind if that's the case but um the new york times describe her as a a deadpan comedian and i I think that's very true um and this book is particularly sharp-edged and very witty um and 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 maybe like for some people overly sort of stylized but i was completely captivated by it um it's so agile basically it's about a, a character called penny and she becomes this mouthpiece for the kind of pithy cynicism that we associate with the millennial generation um And the characters around her feed that arch outlook that she has. Um, For example, her mother, I won't go into it, it's complicated plot wise, but her mother, um, when questioned how everyone knows of of the father's death, delivers the line, oh my God, I told no one. I was too grieving, but Facebook maybe? I updated my status to single. And stuff like that, in one line, she conveys such a vast amount. Um, But with this kind of sense of joyful frivolity that actually when you finish the book it, it, it is not in line with what she's really talking about because it, it leaves a big impression um but it's also it relates to sally rooney's book because it's another foursome essentially um, and i think actually that there are two books it would be really interesting to have a longer dialogue about those two books in communication with one another
0: because um, they I really need different. to read Null's I still yeah. haven't read anything by her.
1: You really do. I, I really also really want to know what you think of her, because I don't know if you'll love her as much as I do. I don't know if it will get you quite in the same way, um, because your taste is not as good as mine, obviously. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> anyway, um, it is. it's great, and I think it's one of the reasons that her books feel subversive, because of the way that they, with such speed, zip in and out of dialogue and internal exposition and kind of... I don't know, there's just, I'm going to keep saying the word dexterity, but you just, you feel like you're on this fast, energetic ride and you have absolutely no idea what's coming and it could be a complete catastrophe and often it sort of is, but in the catastrophe you find something really, really meaningful.
0: Mm. Did that tempt you? Yeah, it did tempt me. Okay, good. More more than I have been tempted before. Good. You're good at selling books. Oh, thanks, honey. You should work in our industry. Do you want to give me a job? <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't want the jobs I can give you, I can tell you that so my recommendation that I hinted at earlier um if readers were were paying attention readers listeners oh god off to a terrible start already (laughs) um is neither an obscure nor an original recommendation I must say um but I would I would really like to do a longer shout out to Jane Austen because I just think she is the master of conversations um I am reading Persuasion right now. The reason for this is that my husband's parents live in lyme Regis, and every time I tell people that, they, you know, per- people have a certain literary persuasion, I should say. And probably age. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk about The French Lieutenant's Woman, which, which I know you love, books and also Persuasion. Um, and I have read neither of them.
1: It's interesting that you would choose the Austen book. I don't like Jane Austen very much. Well...
0: But That's fine. I I respect that. I'm not I'm not an Austenophile.
1: I think it's different growing up in England as well because you're just it's so much Austen is rammed down your fucking throat as a kid.
0: Yeah. Well, I hadn't I hadn't read any Austen since College, I guess. I think I picked up Pride and Prejudice and like read some of it, but I, I really hadn't engaged with it at all. And I'm re-engaging with it now. And it is so much better than I remember it being. That's interesting. It's, yeah. Well, first of all, it it's just delightful. Um so, <laughs> sounds like first a character all, <laughs> from Jane Austen. Second of all, it is way sharper and more satirical than I remember it being. She really it that her narrator has a very, very, very sharp observational tongue and the characters are very like the whole beginning of Persuasion is talking about how this character Anne, everyone in her family hates her and is and is uninterested in, in her opinions and her thoughts <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't really care where she is or what she does. Poor Anne. Yeah, poor Anne. Well, I, I think it's going to work out for her. I just have this feeling <laughs> eventually. Um, but it's also it's so her dialogue is so sharp it's so she is so good at conveying so much in a little sentence that someone says about their character um and at just creating instantly these worlds from just how people speak to each other i think that's probably especially true of novels set amongst the upper classes um, who have very formalized ways of being with each other and thinking. And so what they can express to each other is very far from what they actually feel about things. And a lot of the comedy in this novel arises from that. But it, it it's just really, I, she you can see why she's been so influential and why she is so loved. And I think it's not necessarily for the romantic reasons that are now portrayed. Very good summation there. I agree with you. I mean, I, the thing is, I don't think, I think she's an incredibly
1: important writer and I would never try and say she was not skilled because I do think she is. I just have no desire to be in the worlds that she writes about. Um, I find them very oppressive. Yeah, I
0: I see that. It's a I, mean, I mean, I mean, it's like rich people in country houses.
1: Yeah. Well, I've got Donatart for that. You see.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just want to quickly mention the absent therapist by Will Eaves, who I will say is one of my clients. So I. Oh my god, I'm, nepotism! Get out. I am Harry, definitely biased, but um, this book is really wonderful. It is this weird, odd short book of what are basically overheard conversations and monologues. Sounds great. Um, and I think all of these voices, first of all, it's just a masterclass in creating voices and creating different voices, but also these voices all speak to each other in a really interesting way. And I think it is a new way of thinking about conversation in the novel. So I'd really recommend it. Can you send me a copy? I I can actually send you a copy. (laughs) Bingo. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, um, we will be back in a bit with our book recommendations. I'm Carrie Plitt, this is Literary Friction, and I'm back here with Octavia Bright and Sally Rooney to give our book recommendations. So do you want to start, Octavia? Yes, please.
1: Um, I'm recommending a, a, an oldie but goodie, Rabbit Run by John Updike, which I first came across a long time ago and kind of enjoyed it, but didn't really dig into it that much and it's just recently become my favorite book at bedtime
0: and I think I'm the only person we always joke about this on the show that I'm the only person Sally who listens to book at bedtime but I do actually um, a lot of people do listen to it usually not our demographic knowing what I know about the publishing industry and also I must say that how if we counted up how many of your recommendations are actually just book at bedtime <laughs> It might be embarrassing, but go on.
1: <laughs> it means that the BBC know that they're doing their job right, because it does anyway. Thanks for that. Um, it is on Book at Bedtime at the moment, and it's beautifully read by Toby Jones, which, I, which is, a, he's got a fabulous voice. But it prompted me, as it often does, as Carrie pointed out, to get the book and reread it. And it's just fucking brilliant. I mean, it's a misogynist narrative, but it, it doesn't really matter because it, it's published in 1960 and it's so much a book of its time. Um, but he's an exquisite writer, like, and he really kind of gets into this world of... If you take it out of the, the context of the gender politics that are awkward, to say the very least... Um, you can still relate to the sense of entrapment that the the main character harry harry rabbit angstrom feels so i'll just give you a quick pressie for anyone who's not heard of it um harry rabbit Armstrong angstrom is a 26 year old former high school basketball star High school basketball star. Did I say that weirdly?
0: Yeah,
1: no. Okay. Um, high school basketball star. I'm so star. hot. <laughs> um, you using and, my excuse now. Go on. <laughs> um, he's, he's basically suffocated by his suburban life. He has an alcoholic wife. He's got a job he hates. Um, and it's this kind of, it pitches the frenzied libidinous energy of, of, of what in the novel is a very masculine need for freedom against, um, again, what's in the novel con- conceived of as a very droning feminine presence that wants to kind of batten him down and and take him hostage. Um, And Sarah Churchwell wrote a really great article for The Guardian just the other day about this novel being revisited on Book at Bedtime and the fact that, you know, what she says, women end up symbolising dependence and paralysis while men get to symbolise independence and liberty. And it's undoubtedly true about the book, but that doesn't stop it being a really, really phenomenal read um, because his skill with language is just divine and the characters are you know, very, very human and complex and difficult and angry making and all of these things. But it, basically, it stirred up so much more emotion in me than it did the first time I looked at it. Um, and I think that's probably because I'm older now, you know, and I when I first looked at it, I was much younger than Harry Angstrom And now I'm, I was going to say about his age. It's a massive lie. I'm four years older than I, <laughs> <laughs> I it, it kind of... Um, the reason I wanted to talk about it today is because it reminded me of the kind of power of revisiting books at different times in your life mm-hmm. and being open to them coming to you however they may, even if it's on Book at Bedtime. <laughs> so there we go. That's mine.
0: Yeah. It, it makes me maybe want to revisit it um, because I think I read it outside of knowing about feminism and I really, I must say, I'm very embarrassed to say that I really didn't pick up on a lot of those, those gender narratives mm. it, broiling beneath Go, the surface. What do you
2: mean? No,
0: it's, it's really embarrassing. And, and, and I think it, it shows just how deeply ingrained that they are, that I just thought it was a really beautifully written novel. Mm. Um, so I think maybe what we're pointing to is the argument between do we tear down history if it makes us uncomfortable or do we engage with it um, with our analytical eye? I think you're you're arguing for the latter. I am. Mm-hmm. Firmly. Um Sally, do you want to give your Sure. So the
2: book that I would like to recommend is a new book, which I think is coming out maybe this week or next week. Um it's by Elif Batterman and it's called The Idiot. Um it's a campus novel, it's a coming-of-age story, so you can see why I was attracted to it. Um and it's about this sort of phenomenally intelligent um Young undergraduate, completely lacking in sort of social graces, who, um, it's just she's navigating her way through a semester at Harvard and asking some very powerful questions about language and communication. And it's set in the mid 90s, um, when email was like invented, (laughs) which, and email forms a kind of a big part of the book, and she's sort of, um, begins a relationship with another student sort of through email and the magic of that form of communication, which is something that I'm interested in too, but which I never experienced that sort of like magical newness of because it was already like, pretty old by the time I started using it, um, is so fascinating and it really... Um without being in any way pretentious or inaccessible, it really demands so much of the reader intellectually and it made me think anew about the philosophy of language and the way we communicate. So I absolutely loved every minute of reading it. It's also laugh out loud funny. It is one of the funniest books I've read, like, ever. Uh, I couldn't believe how funny it was. Like, uh, and, and for me, funny books are just always memorably great. Um, So, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Would recommend without hesitation. I can't, can't wait to read that. Yeah, it sounds brilliant.
0: Yeah, I loved her first book, The Possess which is I about it. um, it's a nonfiction book a sort of collection of essays about people who love Russian literature and Elif Bateman going to all of these far-flung places meeting obsessives it's brilliant that also sounds great Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to recommend a short story collection um, called Karate Chop by a Danish author named and I might butcher this pronunciation I didn't look it up beforehand so I apologize but I think it's Dortea Nors Um, Norris has been on the scene for a while. She's written four novels already. Um, and is something of a star in the, in the Danish literary scene. She's won a lot of awards there, but this is the first that I've heard of her. Um, and I think that's probably because it's the first of her novels or collections that's been translated into English. Um, the best word that I can describe, used to describe her is unsettling. Um, her... she writes these very, very short stories. They're like, none of them are longer than, I think, three pages long. And they have this tone, this sort of distanced, almost sarcastic tone about them. And they they almost read like parables. Um, we we sort of watch scenes and relationships on spool as if from a distance. Um, so, you know, the stories, they, they cover a wide range of scenarios and voices and context, but from... A civil servant who becomes a Buddhist um, but then takes over a company and sort of destroys it to a woman in a relationship with an abusive man and and the way that's described in a really uncomfortable way about her complicity um, a mother who moves to remote Jutland which is the sort of the wilderness of of Denmark if that is such a thing um, with her daughter to escape depression but depression sort of comes and finds them and it's this compelling mixture of a sort of cool surface which with this intense beating heart underneath. And I, it really unsettled me. I read them very quickly. It's a very short collection. Um, And she has really interesting things to say, I think, in the same way you do, Sally, about women, about the Internet, about relationships. um, And she just feels like a very original, interesting voice. So I would really recommend it. It's it's published by Pushkin Press here in a volume that's also um, includes a short novella called Mina Needs Rehearsal Space. And it's it's worth reading.
2: It sounds rad. It's amazing. Yeah, I read it um, on holiday a couple of years ago. Could that be true? Or is it just, yeah, I think it was maybe last it year. It came out in the US a bit earlier, I okay. think. Okay, so. yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, yeah. but, um, and I was, as you were blown away by it, I just think she's a genius. And her prose is so incredibly sort of crystalline. Um, and I mean, the translation must be fantastic because it's so, it's such a, uh, an involved read and unsettling, as you say. Yeah, she's incredible.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you've read it. <laughs> I, w- I want to talk more about it. Yeah, we
2: should. <laughs> Do a whole other show and it would
0: <laughs> be Maybe great. our listeners wouldn't appreciate that. <laughs> thank you so much, Sally. Oh, thank Thanks, you. Sally.
2: Thank you both so much. Thank you.
0: Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our guests, Sally Rooney, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a
1: podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on Live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And please say hi, we really love to hear from you. Also, I'm very much on theme, Please check out issue two of the fabulous Orlando magazine, the theme of which is discourse. So perfect. Um, and it opens with a piece by Carrie and I talking about, talking about books.
0: Yes, and I actually think I refer to discourse as a fancy word for conversation. Yeah, you do. Which shows what a... <laughs> Billy I am. Even. Um, so we'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.